When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. I am Ben Turret Bolin. And I am Scott uh, Torpedo Benjamin. I was hoping you would say Torpedo. Yeah. Uh, Guys, uh, this is our second episode on Preston Tucker. uh, And we won't go ahead, we won't bother with a recap of the first episode other than to say we think it's really interesting. Check it out. Yeah, it was pretty lengthy, but you know what? We need to get all that out in order to let you understand who this guy is, who Preston Tucker really is, because this is the part that picks up with the movie. So mm-hmm. our entire first episode is everything leading up to what you see happening in the happening in the movie. And now we're going to kind of cover some of what happened in the movie, but it's it's really the this is the uh, what do you want to say unembellished version. Yeah, there we go. That's good. This is the non movie world version yeah, of that. I guess so. That's uh, that's hopefully the way it is. And we'll try to get all these facts out. And I tell you, Ben, this is. There's so many things we mentioned, you know, we were adding post-it notes on top of post-it notes on this one. So I'm going to try to keep all this straight, but we, we left last episode leading up to, uh, Tucker had just moved his, his family back to Michigan to start up, uh, the, the Tucker Corporation, uh, which was the car that eventually will build the Tucker 48. Yes. And, uh, so this is a big jump for him. He's decided that, you know, he, he's got this love of automobiles for his whole life. This is what he wants to do. He wants to build a production automobile and he thinks he's going to be able to do it. Yeah, and we will see that this is somewhere between a careful what you wish for situation and a cautionary tale. Yeah. But the uh, Tucker Corporation yep. is what we're finally talking about, right? Starts around 1944. I mean, mm-hmm. if you want to really kind of go back to when this is really starting to, to get the ball rolling, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And and I'll say that, you know, this kind of rolls into the period just after World War II. So, you know, going through the, the late the late 40s. Let me do some, uh, We I want to do some context in here, too. Sure. Okay, because of World War II, the large three automa- automotive manufacturers, Scott, they hadn't been building new models. Mm-hmm. There wasn't um, innovation. To a guy like uh, Preston Tucker, innovation is the watchword of everything. Yeah, right? imagine, imagine how strange this has been. That you know you're in the mid 1940s. You're, you're talking like you know mid to late 1940s. Right. Yeah. And the the big three, GM, Ford, and Chrysler, 
had not redesigned anything since 1941 due to that war effort. Yeah, and this was something that was common with a lot of industries, you know, not just – what we're saying is it wasn't just U.S. car manufacturers, uh, but there was – there wasn't really – New stuff in the market, and Tucker saw an opportunity. Yeah, he said, you know, this is the perfect chance for a small car maker to get in and kind of fill that gap with a new design. And he had all these ideas. You know, of course, he's a yeah. he's an idea man. He's an idea guy. So he's thinking, you know, all the stuff that I wanted to do, you know, that I could have done, let's say if I was around at the very dawn of the automobile, you know, when people were building cars in sheds again. Mm-hmm. Um, that is kind of like the the... the the frame of mind that he's in is like, I can do this right now. Even though it's 40 years later, 45 years later, we're kind of back at that point again that it's going to be possible. You know, someone new to the game is going to be able to do something revolutionary and it's going to really take off. And that's his, his big thinking. You know, he always thought big. He always thought, yeah. you know, this is the way I want to do it. Uh, all right. Look, I know that you can tell I'm visibly becoming more excited yes. as we get closer to the car. Yes. Uh, I was a little bit worried in our last episode where we said all this stuff about this man's life. And we talked about some of his early inventions, too. Mm-hmm. But I would uh, I don't want any of our listeners to think, you know, oh, you guys made me sit through a whole episode and didn't talk about the car. Uh, that's because we saved it for this part. This is so awesome. So 1946, Science Illustrated magazine has, like, the first Tucker advertisement, right? Yeah, yeah that's really cool. It's a, like a big full-page ad, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and it's fancy. And... uh. One of the big things they say, okay, now, this is a little disingenuous, right? So we've talked about how car production works before. They've got the, they've got the little one-eighth model, right? Sure. But they take the photos such that it looks like they already have the full car built. Yeah, it's a little, uh, little photo trickery. Right. It just says, torpedo on wheels. Yeah, yeah. And it's a very futuristic design, something so revolutionary that people were just hungry for at this time because, again, they haven't designed anything since 1941. So here right. comes Tucker in 1946 with this brand new design that looks like something from, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, Flash Gordon movie or something. It's yeah. some, so futuristic. And he's talking a good game, but honestly, they don't have the prototype finished yet. No, they don't. And to, for the prototype, what they did was they went to a guy, um, they went to a guy named George Lawson. Mm-hmm. And George Lawson was a designer and he designed the original Tucker torpedo for Tucker with all these features in it that Tucker wanted. You know, he said he wanted uh, this and that. And, you know, the, George said, okay, well, I can make something like that. I'll, I'll show you my idea. And if you want to know who George Lawson was, I can give you a quick thing from uh, the Hemmings blog that I read about him. Yeah. Uh, he's not the one who gets the credit for the Tucker sedan, as we'll find out. But that, that'll lead into this. This kind of leads into the story. Okay. So Lawson is the designer of the Tucker torpedo, the original prototype design that never really made it to production. Mm-hmm. Never made it past the one eight scale model, as right. a matter of fact. Yeah. Um, so in the end, only part of his original design was used in the production Tucker forty eight. Just just a few bits and pieces here and there. Um, but he designed th- this Lawson guy. Apparently, designed vehicles that were so futuristic, and uh, the term they used in, in Hemmings was space agey. Yeah. That uh, that he was even kicked out of the Buick Design Studio when he first started to work for GM. Uh, in their art and color division. So, you know, even back then when they were kind of doing this thing, it's like, you know, they're making cars look like spaceships, um, uh, right. you know, like rocket ships. You remember those? Yes. Well, his designs were so beyond even that that they kicked him out. They said, you know, that's just too crazy. We can't do anything like that. You're really not a car designer. This is maybe something more. You should maybe go into aviation or something, you know, and, uh, and told <laughs> him spaceships. Yeah, told him, spaceships. pretty much told him to get lost. So, you know, he, 
he says, okay, well, I'll just go ahead and do my own thing. And he found, he, he linked up with Preston Tucker. And Preston Tucker said, you know, I'd, I'd love a futuristic design like that. That's just what we need. Um, but his designs, this, this Lawson's designs did influence other people like Bill Mitchell, eventually, who was working at the uh, art and color division with him. Right. Um, also Alex Tremulous, who is the guy that eventually designed the sedan for Tucker. Right, yeah. Now, Alex Tremulous was originally from a Chicago design firm called Tamman and Dennison. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lawson left uh, Tucker's corporation in the very end of 1946, yeah, right? Sure. And uh, then... Well, and the reason is because Tucker didn't pay him for his design initially. And I don't know if that was like some kind of deal that they worked out or whatever, oh. but, but uh, Lawson sued Tucker for something like $45,000 and he settled out of court for $10,000. Uh, but he never got really, he never was really paid for wow. that initial torpedo design that he made for Tucker. So that's the reason he left. Huh. And, uh, Tucker hires, uh, Alex Tremulous there. And, um, the, the design that Tremulous has is based on Lawson's design. Based on it, yeah. Now, this guy comes Tweaks from... it a little. Yeah, Tremulous comes from the Auburn Cord Duesenberg design studio, I guess. Right, and he's yeah. the one who's, who's working on those cars. So beautiful, beautiful designs of that era, too. Um, and he's there to style the new sedan for, for Tucker. And get this, Ben. Tucker gives Alex six days to complete the design. And, and the time frame for this, Ben, he gives him six days, and the six days span over December 24th, 1946. So he gives it to him on Christmas Eve and he says, I want the design by New Year's Eve this year. So he says by December 31st this year in six days from now, I want my new sedan to be designed. And, uh, he shows him the design. He shows him the, and he calls it the Tucker torpedo. Um, and shows him the designs and says, you know, this is your new car, the sedan. Tucker really goes over it, you know, fine tooth comb, loves it. No problem at all. So, you know, the six days actually happened. He was able wow. to design the thing in yeah. six days. Amazing. And, you know, they called it the torpedo initially, but they switched it over to the Tucker 48 not long after that because they found that mm-hmm. people were associating the word torpedo with some of the, uh, you know, the, the war. With know, atrocities. Yeah, atrocities that had just been happening, yeah. uh, you know, in the past, you know, decade. Sure. And a lot of people had a negative connotation with the word torpedo, even though it's kind of a cool name for a car. Yeah. Um, maybe a cool name now. Just out of World War II, maybe not so cool. Right. It reminds you of U-boats and stuff. Exactly. So they uh, they said, well, we'll just call it the Tucker 48 because we're going to release this sucker in 1948. Right. And they, uh, the thing is that we earlier said that when this advertisement came out, it still was based on a, um, let's, let's call it an optimistic idea, right? Sure. This, I mean, it's December of 1946. Right, yeah. They don't really know what's going on. So as as the um, buildup to the Tucker releases over these two years, mm-hmm. funny thing happens with the Tucker's appearance. It's a little bit different each time. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's like... Just a little bit. Just it's little a, tweaks. Yeah, exactly. And by 19, 1947, in March of 1947, newspapers were starting to carry full-page ads for the Tucker 48, which is the Alex Tremulous design. Right. And that's the one we're familiar with. Yep. And uh, what they were doing is they were showing this prototype vehicle that they had built called the Tin Goose. And the Tin Goose is the very first Tucker car that was ever made. And it was, you know... It was pounded out with hammers on, you know, wooden molds. And, you know, it was just, uh, um, again, designed in six days. It was an amazing design. Yeah. It was really, really cool. Um, when you think about just how quickly all this came together, so quickly, Ben, I mean, the big three 
they had they were at the time it was something like four years from original drawing to prototype. Well, Tucker is trying to attempt to do this in something like two to two and a half years, and he's successful at it. He eventually gets there. Again, but there's not a patient man. Yeah, but there's a lot that goes on with this because, you know, in March of 1947, now, you remember in December of 46, he's got this, uh, the Tucker torpedo that he's shown this, uh, this scale model that a lot of people think is a real car. Right. A full scale car, but it's not. It's a one eighth scale. In 1947, newspaper ads are carrying these full page ads for the Tucker 48, which is going to be the real design. As we'll find out, you know, it's, that's yes. the sedan. Um, but he claims that there's like 15 years of testing and development that's gone to produce what he calls the car of the year for 1948 already. And he's preemptively calling it that. He's saying 15 years of testing and development um, early on, but really he's just been thinking about it for 15 years. Right. I mean, he's the guy's got game. He's, okay? a, he's a salesman. Yeah, he's got he's got a game. He's got a hustle going on. Let's talk about some of let's talk about the good stuff. Right. Can we talk some fun stuff he, about the car? Of course. Yeah. OK. So one of the coolest things about a Tucker, when you look at it, it's uh, it's got a directional third headlight, which I think is brilliant yeah. and should be around in some form today. Uh, what what do we mean when we say directional? Great question. We mean that you're driving your Tucker, right? You're driving your Tucker 48. You're like, oh, I got the car of the year from 1948. And you say, oh, it's time to turn right. And then that, that center headlight will turn right with you. Yeah. That's amazing. And what we call today in, you know, 2014, we call that adaptive headlights. Yeah. And adaptive headlights are a very high end feature on cars like BMWs and Audis and Mercedes. I don't even know if Mercedes is even doing it now. Maybe not. But adaptive headlights are something that is relatively new again to the automotive industry because it's just been shelved for that long. This thing is, is like 70 years ahead of its time, Ben. Yeah. And, uh, let's see. At the time though, um, Almost 20 states, like 17 states, had laws against cars with more than two headlights. Ah, but you know how they got around that? And I found this in uh, in some of the information that I was digging around for. How they get around that it? That center headlight only comes on when you're turning above a certain degree. Oh, like above 10 degrees. 10 degrees. That's right. So you got the same info. Yeah. It's uh, it, you know, so when you're t- you know you're driving straight down the road, it's not on. When you turn the steering wheel greater than 10 degrees either direction. That's when that center light comes on, and a lot of people don't know that. They so think you, it's always on. You can only get pulled over for that if they catch you turning. I guess so, but you know what? Even cars, uh, I think cars even now have turning lights, mm-hmm. uh, which are, you know, you turn the turn signal on and a bright light kind of comes down to the lower, let's say you turn on your right turn signal. Yeah. A uh, bright light will shine down into the right in front of you to kind of illuminate the curb in front of you. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a uh, wishy-washy way to do the same thing. Right, yeah. Well, let's, okay. But it's it. I think we're on board that the adaptive headlight stuff should have come into play earlier in the car market, and I, it could have. I believe so. It's a very expensive thing to do, yeah. and he was including all this crazy stuff. Another thing, Ben, and we're going to talk about some of these that made it to the car and some didn't make okay, it to the car. Yeah. But um, all-wheel independent suspension, I think that eventually did not make it to the uh, to the final vehicle, but it was in the prototype. Right. Yeah. Um, center seating position, Ben. That's so cool. That's like that's the McLaren. Remember the McLaren? Right, yep. Yep. We've, we've seen that before with, through the passengers next to him and. Yeah, passengers, uh, to the left and right back at an angle. Wasn't the Phantom Corsair the same way? Uh huh. You remember the Heinz yes, vehicle? Yep. Rusty, Rusty Heinz designed the yep. Phantom Corsair that was Huge, the, uh, yeah, yeah the, the flying well, wombat. The, the thing with the, uh, <laughs> the thing with the wombat is that it had the, the bench seating in the front that could seat four, right? Yeah. And then the, uh, the driver was, the second from the left, yeah. If you're sitting in the car, I think you're right. It was just yeah. slightly off, you know. But but uh, man, that was a huge car. That was that amazing. Was a huge but, car too. But, this uh, the Tucker also has uh, a lot of safety. 
features that are streets ahead of the time. Yeah, yeah, like the uh, the pop out windshield, you know, uh-huh. the, the safety glass. That's safety one. Glass. Um, it had um, well, I think a couple things that didn't make it. Um, well, you know what? There's there's so many that did make it. We should talk about those. What about the the padded dash? Padded dash and for safety in case you bump your head. If you look at a photo of the interior, all of the controls are on the driver's left hand side. Mm-hmm. Everything. It's like uh, everything ends at the driver's right knee almost. And there's yep. there's nothing but a compartment on the passenger side. It's like a big carpeted, uh, almost like a big box, right? Right. Yep. Below the passenger seat. And that this is the funniest, maybe the funniest safety feature and kind of uh, makes people raise their eyebrows a little bit about this one. Mm. If there was a crash imminent... The passenger was supposed to dive into that boxed area, that carpeted box oh, area, yeah, yeah, that as, is per, weird. as a protection area. Right. And uh, so it was like a it was like a reinforced, caged-in area almost. Yeah. And it was supposed to be a safety design, you know, safety cell. Um, and I, I don't know. I'm a little. We, we don't have any accident data to see how that <laughs> how that goes out. But I'm a, yeah. I'm a little bit skeptical. Uh, they also had a um, it, this is interesting. So the car is, ends up. As you said, it doesn't get all wheel. It ends up being rear engine and rear wheel. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that got me is that for him, that's sort of a safety concern too. Instead of having, you know, the engine at the front where the vast majority of cars were putting their engines, sure. I think he had it at the rear so that he could do that kind of safety stuff with the shotgun seat. Sure. Yeah. That wouldn't have been possible. That, that boxed in area. No way. And yeah. then, uh, also he designed. This is why I wish we had seen more Tuckers, because already early on, he's doing something that is so clever, which is he's starting to hint at modular design, at the idea that you could pop a drivetrain out, you know, easily. I love this idea. Yeah. Now, this is really, I mean, not that it's it's really going to work or anything like that, because we're, we're talking about this with the Tesla as well. Yeah. And we're talking about the battery swap thing. Remember, mm-hmm. we've, we've mentioned that with the Tesla Model S. So this is a design idea. It's been a long time coming, but you mentioned modular design with this thing. You're saying you're going to pop the the, the transmission, the engine, everything out on yep. this on this frame that would easily be lowered off. I think it was like six bolts. Yeah, it's just a separate subframe and only has six bolts. Uh, so the idea is that in just a half hour, you could not only drop that entire drivetrain but replace it. Yeah, put one back in, kind of a loner unit. Yeah, uh, for the for the passengers while and they, they work on your engine. Yeah, yeah, for the so that you could leave that unit there at the engine shop while they worked on it, or the, the uh, Tucker dealership, or wherever you're going, and uh, and drive away, and you know, run your errands or whatever, come back and pick up your original motor and transmission, and mm-hmm. uh, have it swap back in again. Six bolts. How easy is that, right? The subframe thing is a great idea. That's amazing. Now, now the engine. We've got to talk about the engine, and I will do this kind of quickly because there's still so much more to go to. That's ben. true. And um, I do want to get to. Um, the engine, and we'll do this kind of quick. All right. Um, the original plan, now this is a big engine. They originally planned a rear-mounted 589-cubic-inch Hemi flat-six engine that was 9.7 liters in size. That's a mm-hmm. gigantic engine. Yeah, now, it's a monster. Now, when you think that you know, it was going to have this massive amount of power, I think they were only promising something like 150 horsepower out of the whole thing. Uh, yeah, the... It goes to show you what tuning was like back then, I guess, right? <laughs> that's really I mean, that's true. It had it had some unique things. I mean, it had it was supposed to be fuel injected, which was relatively new at the time. Or overhead brand- valves, yeah, what? overhead valves that were operated by hydraulic pressure, yeah. as opposed to cams. Now, that's something I don't even know if we're doing that now. I don't think so, because if you think about that, that's valves operated by hydraulic pressure, no cams at all. Is that yeah? Is that happening? I don't even know if that's happening. I'll have to look that up and we're find out. We're gonna have to dig it because I don't know either. Very either way. 
we're talking late 40s. This is very innovative. I mean, the fuel injection wasn't really in cars for something like another eight years right. um, in the Mercedes, uh, Mercedes-Benz 300SL. So you can see that this is a very advanced system, and he's putting a lot of high-end stuff into it in a car that's not going to end up costing that much. Um, but the 589 turned out to be way too big, and it required a 24-volt electric system in order just to crank the thing over. Right. So as a result, the 589 is only in the test chassis mm-hmm. in the very first prototype. I think part of the error here, and I, I will say error, is that it was trying to do too many things at once. Mm-hmm. And If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you know where I'm recovering to where you is where to? we uh, we had just dumped the 589 out of the Tucker yep. and uh, decided that he was going to go with the Lycoming aircraft engine in the rear engine bay. Now, Ben... This is revolutionary. He's putting a an, an aircraft engine yes, in is. the car, right? Yep. And he finds out that that Lycoming engine is just not going to work. That's also too big. So he's on his third attempt now, and he decides that he's going to get this this air-cooled helicopter engine 
to power his car, which right. is a, uh, it's, again, this is crazy. This is a, a Franklin flat six engine, 335 cubic inches, and, and it's air cooled when he first gets the engine, and he's got to convert it to a water cooled design because, you know, yeah. it's going to sit at the back of the car and he's worried about, you know, the thing overheating. Not that, you know, an air cooled engine wouldn't work. It's just that, you know, for the design that he's got, he needs to convert it to air, um, sorry, liquid cooled, and that's what he does. And it creates, he finds this, this Franklin engine creates 166 horsepower, which is, you know, pretty good at the time, but right. the, the biggest thing is how much torque this thing puts out. Now, it puts out 372 pound-feet of torque, which is really, really significant for that era, right. uh, for 1947. And um, he's so excited about this engine, you know, because it actually works in this car, yeah. that he decides <laughs> that he doesn't want any other manufacturer to get a hold of this design. He says... So, so he buys the company. He buys... Franklin, and he buys the rights to the engine, and he yeah. says, you know, no one else is going to get the Franklin flat six. You know, that's all your contracts. Exactly. So he owns. He now owns the Franklin, uh, the Franklin Company, uh, the Franklin Aviation Company, or whatever it's called at the time, um, and decides that you know he's going to going to put this powertrain in his car, and that's going to be the way it's going to be. Now here is here is something that I think could become a tipping point to the big question you and I are going to ask each other at the end of this mm-hmm. episode. And that question is this, Scott. Um, at the time, air cool engine controls uh, almost two-thirds of the a- U.S. aviation contracts yeah. for uh, engines, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. So a lot of people are left out in the cold when he literally cancels two-thirds of the contracts. It, that You can't. You can't do something like that without making powerful enemies. No, you're going to get uh, some people that are going to be a little bit upset with you, and I think uh, I think that may be some of what uh, happens in the near future to Mr. Tucker, right? Right. Okay. So, uh, so where are we here? We're we're getting past. Um, you know, he's he's kind of developing this one car, the Tin Goose. He's getting that thing yeah, working in his shed years. or in his barn, rather. And he and, needs and, money, and he does need money. And the, you know, the public is becoming very excited at this point. They're right, uh, they're yeah. excited because of the ads that have, he's placed in these things and saying, you know, the 15 years of testing and development, brand new car. And at, at this point, still, no new cars from the big three are coming out. You know, he's still the four leader. You know, he's the, the on the forefront rather of the design curve. After World War II, he's the one who's saying this is going to be the first brand new car, and I think he calls it the most completely new car in 50 years, which is a really bold statement because that's a that's a slap in the face to um, the other auto manufacturers yeah, at the time. A bit of a diss. Now, 50 years. I mean, now it's 1948, so he's saying since 1898, this is the most advanced, completely new car that has ever been built. So yeah. that's a that's a pretty bold statement. Those are fighting words. Exactly. Now he starts setting up. Again, you said he needs money. He starts right. setting up things like the Tex, uh, the Tucker Export Corporation, which is formed to establish and manage worldwide sales of the Tucker 48 and dealerships were beginning to be set up in places like the United States, South sure. America, South Africa, yep. all over the world. These dealerships were being sold. And this is how he's gaining money. He's starting to, um, you know, get a, a, a pretty good group of leaders together, automotive industry leaders together right. that yep. are also on board with this whole thing. And they're saying, you know, I'm, I really believe in this guy. So he, he kind of assembles these, uh, what they call top guns at the time, you know, from Packard and Plymouth yeah. and General Motors and, you know, Borg Warner and Ford and, you know, fuel injection masters, I guess at the time, people that, you know, were the only ones really doing that. Yeah. Um, uh, just Briggs manufacturing. It's like the superheroes of the automotive world get together for their own Avengers movie. <laughs> exactly. It's the who's who of the automotive world yeah. at the time is, is on the board of Tucker. And by July 1946, 
they all get together and they buy the world's largest factory at the time in Chicago, Illinois, from uh, the the uh, the, from war, the war administration. Yeah, the War Assets Administration. Yeah. So they had owned it for building um, aircraft engines, right? They were building B twenty nine Super Fortress engines there um, in this factory, and it's the the Dodge Chicago Aircraft Engine Plant is the one that they they kind of targeted here. They wanted right. that one. Yeah. And there were actually three huge production lines that were in place in that factory. And there were lots of machines. I mean, the place is loaded with machinery. So he gets it like, you know, turnkey operation, really. It's so big um, that it has a paint line, a trim line, an upholstery line. It's got its own machine shop at every one of these things. Yeah. I mean, you can imagine, you know, the, the amount of machinery that's just packing this place. Uh, but they and they kind of bought it on this floated loan. They said that they needed... You know, we can, we'll buy, we'll allow you to buy this, you know, and we'll, we'll take your $2 million right now or whatever it was, right. your, your down payment. But you're going to need to come up with, I think it was $15 million, uh, by March of 1947. And that's just eight months away. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy. And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Right. So he started raising the money, as you said, selling dealerships. uh, And then he (laughs) did one of the world's first uh, IPOs that was entirely speculative. Yeah. So first public offering where you could buy buy stock in what may well be 
vaporware, right? Yeah, could be. Uh, it's you're buying stock in your belief that this company will uh, be successful. Yeah. So he's got $17 million in the bank. And uh, here's the problem, though. He wasn't able to move in until September 1947. Yeah, that was a problem. Because there were uh, there were disputes over who got to own the plant. Yeah. Now, this these plants are so massive, Ben. There were something like, during the war, there were 30,000 employees building 18,000 engines per month there. Um, it was just, it was a massive, massive operation. It's a huge place, and he's got to get this thing up and running because he's losing money every single day that they're not building cars. They're not producing anything. And yeah. it's and it's happening quickly. And this he starts uh, this Tucker Accessories Program. That's exactly what we have to talk about yeah, the, right now. The Accessories Program? Yeah, okay. So here here's what's going on. He still needs more money. It's very difficult to start your own car company. So he... Uh, he comes out with the Tucker Accessories Program. And here's what you do. You want a Tucker, right? You've got money. Mm-hmm. You, you're the kind of guy who buys new cars. Yep. Uh, and First on the block. First on the block if you can get on that waiting list. And remember, this is a super hot car. So what if there's not really a way that you can just sign up to be on the waiting list? What if you have to do something else? Um, that's what he figured. This was a stroke of sales genius. He said, okay, you want to get on the list for Tucker 48, you have to buy some accessories. Yeah, and the accessories were something that you could buy even before you had your car. Yeah, like so, radio. Yeah, you could buy your floor mats. You could buy Luggage. seat covers. You could buy um, all Key kinds chains. of things. Yeah, everything. I mean, yeah. it's just amazing what you could buy on this accessories program. And he, he made $2 million selling accessories to people that didn't yet have the vehicle. Yeah, and just for the uh, just for the... Inflation calculation. This is more your bag than mine, Scott. Yeah, that's uh, that's over twenty million dollars. Oh, nice work in today's ben. money. Nice work. Um, so the plan is that you know he's telling all these people that he's going to build sixty thousand cars per year, right? One hundred and forty cars per day for the first four months, and then after that he's going to ramp up production to three hundred cars per day after that first four months. And you know, again, this whole thing is going to happen in this big factory, and this all kind of leads to. This this dramatic revealing of the actual car because the public hadn't seen the tin right. goose yet. Yeah, and you can find footage of this, and it's in. You remember those documentaries I mentioned early on? Yes, sir. Okay, there's uh, you know, there's some information in those, or there's some some film in those of this actual event happening the day of, and in June or is it possibly July of 1947? I'm not sure, June or July. Uh, the tin goose was actually it was released. It was christened by his daughter Mary Lee Tucker in Chicago at this big ceremony that they had. Um, at the factory, and they had invited automotive press and you know every, public and everybody that was coming, you know dealers, you know people that had bought dealerships. Yeah. Um, again, they had they had so many people there. They were they were offering they were serving lunch in the cafeteria in shifts. They were having people <laughs> take tours. You know they had scheduled tours of going around the whole factory on these big wagons with um it looked very dangerous, but they had folding chairs on top of these big flat wagons that they were dragging around the factory. Yeah. Um, showing the investors what they were investing in. And people were getting really, really hyped about this, and they were going to see the tin goose on that day. Mm-hmm. So on this day in June of 1947, 1940, or I'm sorry, June or July, um, this thing happens during the show. Now they're all crowded in this one area, yeah. big crowd. The reveal is happening, and I think this was in the movie too. Um, the reveal is happening. This really happened. It was delayed by a couple of hours, and people were getting really upset. It was getting hot. People yeah. are getting a little, you know, kind of shifting back and forth, the weight on their legs, they're getting restless. Uh, but the, the problem was, behind the scenes, behind that velvet curtain, the car wasn't ready to come out yet. Mm-hmm. There were some problems behind the scenes. Now, you know, this is early, early, early on, but it was very tense for Preston Tucker. 
And so, you know, he would come up and he would stall for a while. He would just talk. He would do his salesmanship thing. Yeah. And he'd come out and introduce the family. And then he would sit down. And then, in the crowd. And then he yeah. would sit down for a few minutes and, you know, someone else would talk. And then he would come up and he would say, well, we're really glad y'all came out today. How about a round of applause for, you know, the people yeah. that cooked our lunch today? You know, and then he'd sit down yeah. for a while. And, you know, it was just, either drawing it out, right? It's tough. Well, what was happening behind the scenes was there were battery and ignition, um, f- sorry, fuel ignition. Igni- fuel injection problems going on, uh, so they couldn't start the car. Right. Um, you know, it apparently had dried or drained out. You kind of wanted to turn over, at least on its premiere. The, the suspension snapped while they're waiting, and this is a, a kind of a, a little hinky part of this whole thing, Ben. Some of these people suspected foul play in this because, like, the plant ah, manager was there, yeah. and the plant manager was one of the guys that I saw interviewed, and he said he personally saw it. He was helping get the car out on the stage, right? He said that that suspension was sawed halfway through, you know, so somebody had taken a hacksaw and sawed it through, and then the rest of it just snapped while it was waiting under the weight of its own, own, you know, of the car. Fascinating. Yeah, that's pretty fascinating. So, you know, there was a little bit of, uh, I don't know, what do you call it, a little espionage going on behind Possibly. the scenes. Some, uh, some possible. Yeah, I'm going to say suspected. Uh, but a little foul play. But um, they, they eventually decided that, you know, enough's enough. We're going to push this thing out and let the public think what it thinks of yeah. it. Yeah. And uh, so after hours and hours, they push it out. The daughter does this whole christening thing with, yeah. uh, with you know, the champagne bottle, and it splashes Preston and everything. It could have been really funny, but uh, he, he took it well. Sure. If you watch what happens, he gets soaked with the champagne. Yeah. Um, the, the, gre- the mechanics, who are all greasy and filthy, you know, they come out to join him on stage, and it's a great big happy moment. Everybody loves the car. People go crazy for the Tin Goose design. There's like some guy from the Big Three twirling an overwaxed mustache going, curses! Yeah, exactly, because they're, they're seriously threatened by this. And that leads us to the inevitable, the inevitable thing we all knew was coming, which is the fall of the Tucker Corporation. You see, the SEC has had their eye on Tucker for a very long time. Uh, the big three and uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission have all been uh, a little bit bugged and perturbed by Tucker. Uh, and the more successful he became, the more suspicious they became. Yeah, and these are definitely questionable ways that he's raising money. I mean, he's selling dealerships that don't yet exist. He's, uh, he's selling accessories to cars that he hasn't built. Right. You know, so, so is is he pulling a Ponzi? Is he? I mean, but but you know what? He's actually got the factory. He's got the he's got the production in right. motion. And if you want to call it, and I call it production with finger quotes, you know that uh, he's got cars that are on the line that are being produced. He just doesn't have the money to get them going yet. And I think and, this is a lot more legitimate than uh, a great deal of manufacturing concerns around the same time. Yeah, I think so too. And we'll find out that, you know, they do produce a number of vehicles in the end. But what the main concern is, is this, this senator from Michigan, you know, who's, uh, in, you know, invariably tied in with the big three. I mean, he's got his hands in, uh, well, boy, I don't know if that's the way to say it, Ben. He's, uh, he's, he's involved with the big three, I'm sure. The senator from Michigan, his name is Ferguson, right? Senator Uh, Ferguson. mm -hmm. And, uh, his wife apparently, Owned a lot of stock in one of the uh, major corporations there in Chrysler, I believe it was, or was it Plymouth? I think it's Chrysler. Uh, but you know, they they stand to lose quite a bit from this. And of course, you know, they want to see the uh, their friends, the big three, doing well because they've got you know friends in high places and all those as well, and they're kind of scratching each other's backs. That's right. going on, right? So the, the Senator Ferguson has kind of played out to be the guy that is wanting to take down Tucker, uh, saying that you know what he's coming out with is kind of scary. You know that it really. It's so advanced that for the big three to keep up with what Tucker's doing, what Preston Tucker's doing, it's going to cost them literally billions of dollars 
to just to keep up with him. And it's going to take years to do it. So they're going to lose yeah. in the meantime while he's doing this. And the um, okay, so the SEC had been burned before already because there were loans given to a smaller automaker called Kaiser Fraser. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kaiser Fraser was given a lot of money to make a new car, and then they didn't. So SEC had their had their nose in this already because they didn't want to get burned again. Yeah. But the reason that I think he was shut down intentionally by Big Auto, I know how I sound, okay, Uh the reason that he was shut down intentionally, clearly, there's an economic tie to this. I I started this thinking, well, you know, maybe the guy was, if not intentionally, maybe he was in practice defrauding people, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, uh, I mean, that would be something you could believe. I mean, especially knowing what we know now about the way some of these industries recently, in our in our last few years we've seen in the news. Sure, yeah. The same type of thing is going on. And, and back then, I mean, it was something relatively new. Yeah, the road to all sorts of bad neighborhoods is paved with good intentions. <laughs> so I, I was thinking of – I was thinking of this, but as we read more about this trial, um, which has – these amazing moments in it, Scott, where where the defense attorney at the end, like, okay, so the defense attorney will not call witnesses because they say there has been no offense. Uh-huh. Um, the people who are speaking show that Tucker has been hiring a bunch of employees. The factory is ready despite these delays. The defense attorney toward the end of the trial invites the jury to take a ride in one of the Tucker 48s parked outside before they make their decision. Mm-hmm. And I think there is not a better argument to be made uh, than that when you say, this is real. We are actually making cars, and we're not being shut down for fraud because we haven't committed fraud. Sure. I own the largest factory in the world right now, and I've got the machining ready to go, and there are cars on the production line that are partially assembled and ready. Why aren't you believing me? Why aren't you believing that this thing is real? Yeah. Now, I I hesitate to argue. Um, I, I hesitate to argue that there was some huge active conspiracy, just because that sounds kind of simplified. You know what I mean? I understand. Like the SEC really did have an experiential basis for wanting to keep an eye on this guy, but. But what happened to those charges, Scott? They were eventually completely dropped. Every single one? Every single one of them. Everybody that was indicted in this whole thing, you know, every single one of them was dropped, which is incredible. I mean, so the, the bad news came out. You know, the big headlines say that, you know, Preston Tucker's a fraud and everybody in his company's a fraud. And if you invested in this, you know, you're just been suckered out of your money and it's not going to yeah. happen. Yeah. Uh, then later, you know, they go through the trial. Everybody's found innocent. No problem at all. You know, everybody's uh, completely acquitted of all charges. But it's too late. The damage is done. And Preston fires back this open letter uh, to the automobile industry that is published, you know, in in newspapers all over the United States, maybe even all over the world. I don't know where it was really produced or or rather published. Uh, But it 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 lays out very clearly what he his thoughts are on this whole thing. Um, You know, and it's he he does mention, you know, his friends, you know, the people that believed in him along the way, you know, that that. You know, the, they, they said, well, we'll help you out even though, you know, we don't know if it's really going to work or not. He also published this to his detractors. Yes. You know, that there were, uh, you know, I guess inferences of, uh, spies and bribes going on and, you know, people infiltrating the, the Tucker Corporation and, and, you know, from the inside with oh, inside information. Yeah. Can I read a part? Sure. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> this is several paragraphs and we're not going to read the whole letter on air today, but he says, 
Many of you have gone out of your way to be friendly to the Tucker Corporation. It's true, some of you have not shared our conviction that a rear-engine car is the car of the future, but you have been willing to let the American motorist judge that for himself in the firm belief that's what, that what is best for the motorist is best for you in the long run. But there is another group, a very powerful group, which for two years has carried out a carefully organized campaign to prevent the motoring public from ever getting their hands on the wheel of a Tucker. These people have tried to introduce spies into our plants. They have endeavored to bribe and corrupt loyal Tucker employees. Such curiosity about what goes on in the Tucker plant should be highly flattering, I suppose. But they haven't stopped there. They even have their spokesmen in high places in Washington. As a direct result of their influence, Tucker dealers all over the country, men of character and standing in their community, have been harassed and grilled by agents of the government and congressional investigating committees. Hmm. Paranoid? Uh, maybe not. Maybe not, because he, he points out a lot of coincidences that happen along the way that just seem a little too coincidental. And uh, and I was, you know, early on, I'll tell you, I was under the belief that um, I was thinking that maybe this is just another casualty of the automotive industry, that, you know, it's a small-time automaker that just didn't make it like the, the hundreds or even thousands before him that didn't make it, you know, in the turn of the century. Yeah. Uh, but later on, you know, after we look back at all the history of this and, you know, what's going on, I, I feel like... I feel like maybe there is just a little too much coincidence happening in this case that, you know, there, there are some things that just don't, just don't seem right and they don't feel right. And even, and that's looking back, you know, and being able to piece things together, which he wasn't able to do at the time. He do yeah. kind of halfway what was going on, but not the full story, you know, like as, as it developed later. And, um, Oh man, Ben, we are, we're, I think we're out of time again. We are actually I, out of time. You know, you know what? I'm going to, this is unprecedented in, uh, in car stuff history. You read but my mind, man. Let's let's do this. Let's come back with a part three. We're coming back with a part three, and and this will be more like the uh, I guess the you know the uh, we'll come back with maybe like where the cars are now and yeah. you know, the production numbers and stuff like that. But we've never had to do a part three. And some interesting uh, facts and uh, figures and uh, cars that may not be Tucker's at all. Yeah, it may not be as long as this one was, but man, there's there's so much more about Preston Tucker and yeah. his. Amazing car. We still haven't really gotten to the Tucker 48 and, and some of the unique, crazy things about it. I just want, man, I, okay. In lieu of listener mail, since Scott, you and I are out of time, uh, we highly recommend that you check out the text of the open letter that, uh, Preston Tucker wrote. And yeah. you can find a full copy of it at a handy website that Scott, you and I are both head over heels for, right? Exactly. It's the uh, tuckerclub.org. So if you go to tuckerclub.org, you can read the entire open letter to the automobile industry. Yeah. And you can find a lot of the history that we've been talking about. Their and, message board is awesome. And some of the stuff that we're going to talk about in uh, in part three, I promise. That's we're gonna, true. We're going to get to it. And again, it may not be as long as part one and two, yeah. thankfully, right, for some people. But uh, <laughs> I, but we're going to get get to all this stuff because there's some fascinating stuff with the existing Tuckers that I want to get to. Yes. So stay tuned for unprecedented uh third episode in a series uh in the meantime let us know what you think about preston tucker do you think that he was a charlatan or do you think that he was shut down by big auto or is the truth somewhere in between tell us on facebook drop us a line on twitter visit our website carstuffshow.com you can send scott and i an email directly we are carstuff at discovery.com For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast 
at HowStuffWorks.com. Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at Viking.com. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.